Uh, let's pray. Lord, renew our imaginations, change our hearts, and transform our lives to be more like Jesus. Amen. Amen. Um, do you remember your first day of primary school? I've got two very distinct memories of mine. The first is crying hysterically as I'm prized out of my loving mother's arms and into the care of my new teacher, Mrs. Evans. And the, the second memory isn't all that good either. I was sat, it was, it was after my very first break time of my reception year, and I'm sat like a frightened rabbit in the uh, quiet corner, all of us were, as, as little Mrs. Evans. So uh, my, we had big Mrs. Evans, that was our teacher, and little Mrs. Evans, who in hindsight I, I've learned is a TA. Didn't have the concept at the time, it was just little Mrs. Evans or big Mrs. Evans. This was South Wales. There was unusually one child in my class with a double-barreled surname. Evans Jones was the, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, little Mrs. Evans, my very first break time, my first day of primary school, and she's coming round, the, the, the children, in the um, quiet corner with this plastic washing-up bowl. And inside this washing-up bowl are all of these delights, like monster munch and hula hoops and a bag of salt and shake, which were these um, crisps that used to have like a little sachet of salt in so you could do your own amount of salt, whatever that was about. But for my four-year-old eyes, they were wide open. This was, maybe this whole school thing wasn't so bad. After all, we never had such properly branded crisps in the house that I grew up in. And on each of the packets of crisps, there was a name printed in the little, um, not printed, like written on, stuck on. Wow, one of these bags of crisps was destined for my four-year-old self. Sure enough, little Mrs. Evans made it round to little Owen. And, um, and I looked down, and I saw my name written out proudly in my mother's neat handwriting. And the only problem was, and I can still feel the crushing disappointment now, the only problem was it was stuck to the side of a banana. <laughs> Come on, a banana! <sighs> Easter would arrive, and my parents had this wonderfully non-indulgent tradition of buying each of me and my brothers uh, not a large chocolate egg, like all the other children, no, Easter morning would arrive, this celebration of the victory of God over sin and death, and we would be presented with a book. <laughs> um, I once sometimes wondered whether my mother's default setting was Lent, actually. <laughs> you know when there's, there's never quite enough icing on a cake, or never quite enough sugar in the crumble? And uh, we had this, this gooseberry bush, and it was just not a, a good match, anyway. It's like, I didn't realize this would be like a therapy session. Um, I did not grow up with lashings of anything except Easter books. So it was later in life, and perhaps in reaction to my early years, that I came to walk in the way of demolishing a whole big bar of fruit and nut by myself, or to, to standing in the place of, of late nights cheesy chips with burger sauce, or to sitting in the seat of the Chinese buffet, all-you-can-eat lunch for a solo effort just to boost morale. Has anyone else been there? We weren't, we weren't like, Today, friends, this is a safe place. And our fourth deadly sin that we are thinking about tonight is gluttony. Gluttony. It's like quite a nice word to say, gluttony. Overindulging. 
having too much of something. And we're not just going to be talking about food. Um, but side note, it is perhaps helpful to note that as we talk about um, stuff that includes, very much includes our relationship with food, um, this touches upon stuff that is a very difficult, complex array of issues that some people will be battling with. Um, this talk is not going to be able to speak um, perhaps all that helpfully or directly into those um, complex and, and difficult issues. If that is stuff that you're going through, and we've all got stuff that we're going through, then um, the, the encouragement really is find someone that you can begin to talk to about that. There's a wonderful pastoral care team here, and, um, and they can help you access some of the specialist um, support that is available. Okay, gluttony. Of all the seven deadly sins that are in our list, I, wonder, I was thinking about this, and I was wondering, is this possibly the, what, one of the least appealing to listen to a sermon about? Because I think our subconscious doesn't really want us to go too near some of our, our kind of mood-boosting um, habits of consumption, those little binges, the delivery deals, the little sugar addictions, the, the double measures of whatever your preferred emotional crutch might happen to be. Alcohol, what a classic. eBay, box sets, fast fashion, the news cycle. I had a friend for whom it was buying camping gear. Just like, compulsive, this was his, that was his like secret vice. We don't really want to go too near these, these precious, these like precious um, habits of consumption that we have with the label gluttony. And we certainly don't want to label ourselves a glutton. No, I much prefer the label normal. Thank you very much, please. But the corresponding virtue for today isn't much more appealing. Abstinence or, or temperance is another word for it. Two of the least appealing words in the English language. Am I wrong? What does the practice of abstaining have to do with following Jesus, of going without something, of choosing not to consume didn't Jesus promise life in all its fullness? How does fasting fit in with that? And what about feasting? What is at the heart of our practices of abstinence? Well, the first thing to note is that Jesus did it. If you look down the verses that we read at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, and then you just skip back to the, the second half of chapter 3, you'll notice that this, this bit comes straight after Jesus is baptism. He's literally just been baptized, and the heavens open, and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and the voice of the Father booms out, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after, this Spirit leads him out into the desert to fast. What is that about, Jesus abstaining from food for 40 days? Well, interesting parallels here with the history of the Israelites. So Moses, who had a shout out in that song um, that we just read, he was, um, he, he fasted for 40 days and the whole Israelite people were led into the desert for 40 years. So Jesus is being positioned here in the Gospels as the new Moses who's going to lead a, a new exodus into a, a deeper liberation and freedom for us and also as the faithful and the obedient Israel, who is um, uh, who's the one carrying the vocation uh, of bringing the God's blessing to the whole of creation. 
But here, at the outset, Jesus' obedience is being severely tested. He's been fasting now for 40 days. We're going to take a quick poll, if you're up for that. Um, whether we think Jesus, after 40 days of fasting, was he in a kind of like peak spiritual superpower state? That's option A. Or is this him at extreme uh, point of weakness? So who's up for spiritual superpower charged up to the max? Who's voting for Jesus to be in a place of weakness? And I see a good number of people have obviously been excessively educated to that point where they, they can no longer answer a multiple choice question without <laughs> finding fault in the way that it was um, presented and opting out. That's fair enough. I actually think there's some real mileage in this question, and I, it's, I've pondered it for a little while. I, I used to be kind of more on the side, maybe it was all those Easter books that I was presented with growing up, more when you grow up with Jesus as your superhero. Maybe that kind of formed some of my kind of instant knee-jerk reaction as to Jesus being this sort of, by this point, some like desert spiritual ninja ready to do battle with the desert, with, with the devil in the desert. And I've swung more heavily to, to option B and recognizing Jesus to be in a profound state of weakness and vulnerability here, which is often when these temptations um, emerge most strongly. Thankfully, the gospel writers kind of back me up a little bit on this point with their profound insight that after 40 days of fasting, Jesus, it's, they say very clearly, Jesus was hungry. Great point. So there is this physical weakness, but actually in the place of our weakness, we can, there is a kind of clarity of vision to be accessed. So maybe if you had a very nuanced definition of spiritual power, then maybe that's, that's coming into it. Anyway, you can carry on that discussion in the pub afterwards. The devil gets on Jesus' back at this point, whispers in his ear, I've got a great idea. Why don't we turn these stones into bread? That impulse, that urge, that rising idea, the, the kind of obvious reflex reaction towards an easy consumption. Remember at this point, right at the outset of things, Jesus' Jesus's path is one of profound solidarity with our pain and our suffering, our sorrows and our longing. And in this moment, the temptation that emerges, that whispers in his ear, is to turn away from that calling and short-circuit his way to his own individual comfort and satisfaction. What does he do? Jesus responds with a line that is straight out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is incidentally, non-incidentally actually, the very same passage that refers to the Israelites walking in the desert for 40 years and Moses fasting for 40 days. And this is what he says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live by bread alone. So instead of in that moment escaping his pain, and shortcutting to easy comfort, Jesus remains steadfast. And as he does, he's embodying the reality that there is an even more fundamental source of sustenance to be had than physical food. Sometimes people fast in order to kind of try and get their prayers answered. I don't know if you've, you've tried that one. Um, but fasting in the Bible is much more, it's not so much about getting, trying to get something from God. It's much more about trying to get in tune with something. 
with the deepest realities of our profound dependence, getting in touch with the sorrows of this world, coming to terms with the, the reality of our brokenness and, and repentance over sin, more, more common than any other instance of fasting. That's what it is about. If you've ever fasted, you'll know it's actually hard, uncomfortable, feels a bit miserable. It turns out that it's not only toddlers who get hangry, because we're bumping up against our limits, our weakness. But like Jesus, with an empty belly, we are setting ourselves in the truth that there is more to life than our personal comfort, and that we do not live by bread alone. On a even more fundamental level than our need for food. We are those in need of God's grace. About nine years ago, I had the immense privilege of being welcomed into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I was completing ordination training um, up at Wycliffe, and the, uh, we were required to do a series of placements, and I had the idea of um, doing one of my placements, uh, basically just attending, for a whole year, attending this, this weekly AA meeting. And it worked out, and it happened. And I had the suspicion that there might be a lot to be learnt from that setting, and the, and the spiritual wisdom, actually, in that room. I was not wrong. I spent the year in AA listening to amazing stories and learning so much about the need to interrogate those impulses that rise up within us, all those urges. And I was learning this among people who had become acutely aware that lasting satisfaction is never to be found at the bottom of a bottle. Our gluttony cannot deliver fullness. We cannot successfully chase after pleasure. We just end up numb. There is a deeper emptiness that our consumption can never fill. And this is, I think, where practices of abstinence can be clarifying. Okay, does anyone know who this is? Not me. Anyone got the name? There's a clue in the, in the, uh, the kind of blue bird. This is Jack Dorsey, very good, whoever said that. Um, and he is indeed the founder and the CEO of Twitter. Um, so it is his fault. But he is described, described by some as one of the new monks of Silicon Valley um, because at the last check, he was down to having just five meals per week, supplemented by salt juice and infrared sauna, and he wears a special ring to monitor his sleep and all sorts of things. He is part of what's known as the biohacking movement. I don't know if you've come across it. And the stated aim of which is to hack our own biology, to shrug off our natural limits, to somehow upgrade our physical bodies. Some of the more controversial efforts of this biohacking scene in Silicon Valley include stem cell injections, attempts at gene editing, and get this, the young blood movement. I think they've shut it down now, but for a while you could spend 10,000 US dollars, um, and older people would do this, to have a blood transfusion from like a 20-year-old's blood in the pseudoscience that this somehow um, was the elixir of everlasting life, or something like that. Then there's this, which is the, the post-food scene. This is part of it as well. All these kind of 
sciency sounding drinks and, and supplements and uh, full of sort of ketones and ringtones and other kind of things of, of dubious um, I'm, I'm quite suspicious, you might be able to tell, of the, the post-food movement. I, I secretly think that these things are just overpriced, slim fast, marketed to proud men who would never kind of um, purchase that sort of thing. What is this all about? At its heart, this, this biohacking attempt is about control, trying to be masters of our own biology. It's about enhanced performance, self-optimization, trying to transcend our limits and shoot at an extra long life, perhaps. One of the CEOs of one of the companies involved says his aim is to make 90 the new 50. And personally, he expects to live at least into 120s. And do you see how starkly different all of that is to the Christian practice of abstinence and fasting? Where the biohacking thing is all about control, actually the invitation to abstinence and fasting is to, to admit that we're not in control. This is where the, the wisdom in the room of an average, commonplace AA meeting far exceeds that of Silicon Valley. Where the um, biohacking thing's about enhanced performance, fasting gives us an opportunity to get in touch with our weakness. Where biohacking's about this transcending our limits, actually the, the invitation of abstinence is to accept, to come to terms with our, our, the reality that we are limited creatures. And so instead of this quest to extend life, Lent, which starts with Ash Wednesday, is all about getting in touch with our mortality. The very good news tonight is that our story is not one of self-improvement and transcending our limits. Our story is one of grace, of tumbling into the embrace of God. God's sheer gift of grace to us in Jesus. It includes the forgiveness that we each need when we kind of come to these vices and there's lots of little corners of secrecy and shame. The grace of God wipes away our, our deepest and our darkest. And it's this, this grace, it's at the deepest heart of things that says there's nothing left to fear and there's nothing left to prove and actually God can breathe peace and true security into the depths of our lives. Do you know this grace? Do you know what I'm talking about? This is what all the fuss is really about. This is why we sing. And it is available. It's a, it's a, this peace comes as a, as a real thing. We can pray for that tonight for you. There's some more, one last bit of really great news. And that's this, that fasting always holds hands with feasting. In the very next chapter of Luke, chapter 5, if you flick over, you see that the disapproval brigade are out, and they are questioning Jesus and being like, uh, why are your followers not fasting, Jesus? And Jesus' response is like, there's going to be a time for them to fast, but it is not when the bridegroom is here amongst them. Do you remember that bit? At Christmas, we celebrate the presence, the very presence of God with us. At Easter, we celebrate the victory of God's love over sin and death. These are the two biggest feasts of the year, where in a suitably big way, we receive the, the goodness, the very goodness of food and drink. 
and friendship and other gifts, and we're celebrating with others the goodness and the presence and the victory of God. Amen to that. Now, leading up to Christmas, we have Advent. And, and leading up to Easter, there's this period called Lent. These are opportunities and invitations, traditionally, to fast. The whole setup, do you see, is not one, it's not a dreary call to abstinence, 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 with a little bit of temperance thrown in on the weekends. No, no, no. The whole thing is this rhythm of fasting and feasting, of going without and then, and then receiving the goodness. I love it, this rhythm, because um, two reasons. Number one, it embodies what we actually believe, right? So in Advent, we are um, acknowledging the, our longing for the, king, the coming kingdom of God. And then at Christmas, we celebrate that the king has come. At, during Lent, we, we have opportunity to, to, to kind of acknowledge um, our, our own brokenness and need for healing. And then at Easter, we celebrate God's victory over all sin and death. This rhythm gives us a, a way into embodying how things really are. So embodying our theology, it's like the not yet and the now of the kingdom of God. So that's number reason, reason number one. It's kind of a way of embodying how things really are. Number two, you get some serious joy in your life with this contrast. Not only is it eyes open and honest to how things are, but it throws our joys into such vivid relief. Gluttony will just deliver this kind of flat line of diminishing returns, leaving us fairly numb. Our practices of abstinence and celebration of fasting and then feasting can really help propel us into the fullness of life that Jesus was talking about. Lent arrives in two and a half weeks. This is not, if you've heard anything I've said, this is not an opportunity for you to hack your way into becoming a spiritual superhero. No, it's an opportunity to get in touch with reality. Could there be some reflex consumptions in your life that are not so healthy, that are functioning inappropriately as emotional crutches or escapisms or distractions? Could you employ a deliberate strategy of abstinence over the period of Lent, perhaps, that's seven weeks long. Give it a go. Maybe you need to abstain from the news. What about abstaining from social media? I did that once and didn't go back. Um, what about abstaining from wearing your favorite clothes? You know, that outfit that gives you a boost. What about from Netflix? What about from puddings, chocolate, or alcohol? What about from making non-essential purchases for that seven weeks? Could you do it? Maybe the Spirit would lead you to fast for one day per week through the period of Lent. Shortly, we'll be coming around this table to receive again our most fundamental life source, which is the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. And as we receive, we're stepping into our story, which is one of grace.